This talk, called Deep in the Mountains 2, was given by Joan Sutherland at Vallecitos Mountain Ranch on July 2, 2013. Nice to meet in the daylight, too. Um, During this week, I thought I would give a few talks about things that I would like to emphasize here on this threshold before I step into another room for a while. And um, today is the day we're going to talk about the problem, (laughs) just for today. And by the problem, I mean um, self and story. Except we're going to talk about it in a way that I hope doesn't emphasize that it's a problem, but actually um, speaks about it in a way that, that even the poor self can be redeemed, just as um, we can be redeemed, each of us. When I uh, was speaking last night, I, I mentioned the idea of forgiving the world for being the world. And inextricably linked to that is the thought of forgiving ourselves for being selves, for being a self. Not forgiving myself for being myself, for being the particular self I am, but even underneath that, forgiving myself for being a self. Can we do that? It seems to me that the nature of forgiveness is that it doesn't require us not to feel that there has been or there still is pain, that there has been or that there still is a wound. We don't have to pretend that that isn't the case. But what we do do is, even still, even though there has been or continues to be a wound, We are willing to accept things as they are. And with that acceptance comes the possibility of a warmth and a compassion for everyone and everything involved, including ourselves. So when I talk about Accepting things as they are, accepting things that they are, is a more accurate way of saying it. I always have to do a little bit of a disclaimer, because I'm not saying um, that we should feel fine that there is climate change or genocide. That's not the point at all. It's that we accept that in this moment, it is so. And if we free up all of the energy that is involved in resisting what is so, in defending against what is so, in having reactions and opinions about what is so, if we free up all of that energy, we can put it towards helping to co-create 
that different state that we hope for. So it's a matter of acting more efficaciously, not accepting the status quo like it's all good, but taking the energy bound up in our reactions to the way things are and putting them toward looking for the seeds of change that we wish to cultivate. Because if we believe in the Dharma, then we believe that things are always changing. And if they're always changing, the seeds of change are already here, even if they're difficult to discern. So our job is to look for them, to support them. Not because we think we're right or because we'll feel better if we do that, because that is our bodhisattva vow. To discern as well as we can what is most helpful and to support that. And in order to do that, We have to forgive the world for being the world, and we have to forgive ourselves for being a self. When we talk about being here now, you know, being in the present moment, mindfulness, all that kind of stuff. I wonder how often what we're unconsciously imagining is ourselves in a particular, located in a particular moment, in a particular way. Here I am, located in this moment, being mindful, being present, paying attention, having awareness. How often, in contrast, are we imagining that what we're doing is allowing a particular moment moment to be located in us? That's the beginning of forgiveness. Are we willing to let the moment, whatever it is, however complicated it is, however painful it is, be genuinely located in us? That's what I mean by acceptance. And that is so much our bodhisattva vow, that willingness, that openness to what is so. Remembering that forgiveness does not require us to deny that there has been a wound. But we accept the present moment anyway. So, I want to talk a little bit about why we have these selves that we spend so much time worrying about. Um, We've talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating. The self isn't a problem in its fundamental existence. In fact, it's necessary. The self is that part of us that stepped forward and said, 
oh, okay, I'll take on responsibility for the continuity of the organism. I'll take responsibility for its preservation. That is a good and a noble thing. And so that's not the problem. And when the self is doing that, that's fine. When I was speaking last night, I mentioned the story of the um, placing down on the table of two different maps. One, a topographical map made by surveyors and cartographers, and the other, a map of song lines made by um, Aboriginal people of the deep mythic landscape of the same place. And how both of those things are simultaneously true And to see both of them, to know both of them, is to have a larger and therefore truer sense of a landscape than you could have from either map by itself. We are like that too. We are not monologues. We are, each of us within ourselves, conversations, and we are made up of parts. Now the self would like you to believe that it is the thing of which the parts, um, which, which is constituted by these parts. It is the overarching thing, and it has all these little subsections. But that's not really true. The self is one part, or more accurately, one viewpoint, one way of experiencing our lives in the world. And in addition to the self, we have, for example, the spirit, which is those experiences when we absolutely know that we are larger than the ordinary, larger than how things usually feel during the day, that we are part of eternity. It's not a part of us that knows that, that is the spirit. It's the experience of knowing that. When we do, then the viewpoint of the spirit is emerging. And what we might notice about that is that when that viewpoint of the spirit is emerging, the viewpoint of the self tends to recede naturally. We don't have to do anything about that, so we'll come back to that in a second. Another viewpoint we have is that of the soul, which is um, the experience of experiencing everything. It is everything we experience in a lifetime through our senses, through our thoughts and feelings, through our intuition. And um, the technical term for that in Buddhism is the alaya vijnana, the storehouse consciousness the place where all of our experiences fall like leaves and pile up there. And one of the things that is most poignant and beautiful to me about the soul, the Alaya Vishnana, is that when we're looking from the viewpoint of, of the self, it's so hard to imagine not immediately having stories about our experiences. And yet there is a place inside of us that already does that, that already accepts every experience we have 
through the senses, through our thoughts and feelings, through our intuition, however we experience it, it accepts them completely, makes no meaning from them, uh, fits them into no narrative, accepts them. Already we can do that thing we think is impossible, which is just to accept. So that's another viewpoint. Sometimes we see with those eyes. Sometimes we can just receive and accept and watch and notice, pay attention to, appreciate. The self is no more than those viewpoints. It's the viewpoint of the organism that would like to keep going for another five minutes. The problem is that the self um, became sort of imperialistic and decided to take over more territory than that. So what has happened, it seems to me, in human evolution, and this is a story no more valuable than any other story, um, is that instead of the self stepping forward and saying... I'll take care of the organism. I'll provide the continuity, which is a good thing. You know, it's like if you're here and you have um, every reason to expect you're going to still be here in five minutes, it's good to have something that's paying attention to continuity so that you don't have to reproduce yourself every five minutes. So um, the self developed a whole repertoire of ways to do that, and some of them are really great. I mean, if you know, it, when, when you know someone or experience yourself um, a, a kind of undeveloped self which doesn't have those capacities for taking care of, for tending to, for defending um, the organism, that that can cause great damage. So that's all right. But it developed a repertoire that just endlessly ramified. So now it has opinions and judgments and prejudices and even paranoias that it thinks are necessary to get us from here to five minutes from here to long enough to reproduce or whatever the, whatever the impulse is. Um, and so then, all of a sudden, the self thinks it is the organism's job to go on existing so that my prejudices and opinions and judgments um, can continue. So we've had a, there's been a flip um, in the koan tradition, it often talks about us being upside down. And so here's a way we've be, we're upside down. The, the self is no longer supporting the survival of the organism. The organism is now continuing to exist to support the opinions of the self. Um, I think we've, we've talked about that in the past as like someone who goes into politics with a great sense of public service, of really wanting to, be, to do good for people, and then um, after a while just ends up wanting to be endlessly reelected. So that's the problem. Not the self itself, um, but that the self has taken on too much taken on more than it should in ways that we find problematic. So what do we do about that? Well, one of the traditional things to try to do about that 
hasn't, as near as I can tell, been often very successful. And that is to spend a lot of time um, scolding or beating the self, you know? Trying to make it smaller, cutting pieces off of it, cutting it off at the knees, doing all of those things that um, seem to, to help with making the self smaller. But all you have to do is look at the um, biography of Siddhartha. He, he couldn't even manage that, you know. He had to give up the harsh austerities with which he was trying to beat the self into submission and do something else. It might work sometimes, but I think not so much. So what instead if not harsh austerities, what do we do? One of the things we can do is just rebalance the confederation of different viewpoints that make us up. We can, for example, encourage the viewpoint of spirit by doing things like coming to this retreat. And as that viewpoint becomes stronger as it takes up more space one of the things we discover in a retreat is that the viewpoint of the self naturally recedes when one comes to the fore the other steps into the background so that's something we can do certainly there are moments in um in a retreat like this and other times in our lives when, when spirit does seem to fill much more space and the self seems to drop away. But there's no need to push it down. It drops away on its own. It drops away naturally. And it seems to me that that's a better way to go about um, rebalancing the confederacy inside ourselves so the self takes more of its proper place there are times on a retreat like this or times when we've climbed a mountain or times when we're swimming you know a multitude of times when we're just experiencing what's happening we're in the place of the soul we're just accepting everything as it comes and when we do that the viewpoint of the self naturally recedes We can work on retraining the self. We can work on encouraging the self to do what it does well and not to do more than that, not to do other things. That takes a certain kind of discipline, but it's not a harsh austerity. It's a forgiving discipline, a discipline that has a warmth to it. A discipline that allows everything to find its proper place, just as we hope to find our proper place in our own lives. Isn't that really what practice is about? Finding our proper place in our own lives. And doesn't it make sense that we would turn that toward the places inside of ourselves that are difficult.
So one of the ways that the self can cause problems is in the stories it tells. And I want to speak to that for a second because I I don't want to leave the impression that all stories are bad all the time. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we can get caught in a story that's smaller than what is actually true. And that can be a problem. If we're continually living in the story that the self is always telling, that story is too small. It contains too little. And when things are partial like that, they're further away from the truest thing. So what we're talking about, again, is not destroying those stories, but continually trying to open them up to include more so that they're in some way truer to the way things are. Can we imagine living in stories, being aware of stories that aren't located just inside ourselves, aren't just about the concerns we carry with us all the time, but exist both inside ourselves and outside ourselves, are larger than that. In any moment, what is the story that contains us, that that includes us, but isn't limited to us? What is the rest of the story, the larger story? In some ways, um, all of practice is about moving out of those stories that are too small, that limit and constrict us, into that larger story that exists not only inside of ourselves, but in the local universe right around us. Because otherwise, all we have is a story about a story. That's where we're living, in our story about the story. And so what helps is to move from the story about the story into the story itself. I mean, why not go straight to the source instead of in our second order of experience? And so much of what we do is about that one shift. Open the gate, open the door, make it larger. No, see the larger it already is. See that we are larger than what our thoughts and feelings contain. And then when the stories of the self come, They don't fill the universe because the universe is not that space bounded by our skin. If our self has expanded out too into that larger space, the story arises in the meadow and the wind in the aspen and that sky full of clouds and sun and wind. And what does it mean then? What does the story mean then against that sky? 
We don't have to annihilate it. We don't have to get rid of it. We don't have to fix it. We don't have to improve it. All we have to do is see it in its true context, which is against that sky. That's all. And then it will become quite apparent how much weight to give it, how much to let it run the show. Then the effort becomes in staying small, staying limited. That becomes the difficult thing to do. That becomes the thing you have to put a lot of energy into because you've seen something else that keeps reminding you that um, that something else is always there. The ancients called the world the Great Sutra. And there was a sense that we're all connected in this great sacred text that is speaking itself all the time in all of the infinite number of forms that it's speaking itself. And our task, they thought, was to come to know that great sutra as well as we could. To see that every time something speaks or makes some kind of sound, there is a scroll of sutras falling from its mouth. Every time something moves, there are scrolls of sutras unfurling from our toes and hooves and wings and everything else. It is not smaller than that. And we have a place in it. We have a part in it. We're a line somewhere, or maybe a paragraph. But there's something so much bigger going on all the time. That great sutra. Jane Hirschfield, in one of her poems, talks about the, the immeasurable's continuous singing until it falls back into story and feeling. The immeasurable's continuous singing. That is the great sutra. So our movement I think, I believe, um, I have a prejudice for the idea that our job is not to slash and burn and scold and feel bad and have judgments about the nature of being human. Our job is not to slash and burn and scold and have judgments about the nature of the world, but to move into the world, to let the world move into us, more importantly, with a kind of foundational forgiveness, a foundational willingness for that to happen. 
And that when we do that, our task becomes to open the gates that are closed, to lift our eyes, to open our ears, to just hear and see and experience what is already so, and to know deeply that that already so is us. We are not lonely pilgrims. We are part of that already so. And to me, moving in that direction, letting that happen, doesn't seem like such a bad way to spend a life. So I'll stop there, and I would welcome any comments or questions you might have. To open the gates that are closed, to pay attention to what is already so, to listen to what there is to hear, to see what there is to see, and to recognize that that great already so is not something we are lonely pilgrims in the midst of, but something that we are an integral part of. It is us. We are already that. And that the, the path toward knowing that for ourselves is um, a path of, of forgiveness and warmth and compassion and courage um, and a willingness to, to not be limited. I mean, to me, that's one of the most astonishing things about the whole project. All we're trying to do is to be willing not to be limited. Why do we struggle so hard with that? Why do we fight that every moment of every day? Yeah? There's those three legs of practice. Great perseverance, great doubt. What's the third one? Great trust. Great trust. It, it was coming to me today, and so, and, and I, uh, it was like, I know it's softer, is it love, is it compassion, but not, okay, so trust. So it seems to me that there's sort of a way to do what you're talking about. There, uh, method isn't right, and <laughs> a way isn't quite right, a support you know, for, for what you're talking about. To have, to have those, I mean, it takes all of that, it seems to me, to, 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 
to try and move past those limits or to just open up to the fact that we're not limited. I mean, I'm like you're saying, I'm amazed why, why would it be so hard, and yet, anyway, those, those three feel like a support to that. That's wonderful. That's great. Yeah. And then there's sort of that that time when they become enormous too, that they that they become not not only the methods we use, and and I don't mean that light. I mean I think they're really important. I think what you're saying is so true that they're they're practices that are so supportive of that. But then we see that they are in fact the nature of the universe itself. And we, we connect with the, the, the great perseverance, the great um, doubt, and the great trust of the universe itself and see that it was never any different than what we were doing in our own practice. Yeah. There's a quote in one of the outhouses, I think it's the uppermost one, about something like the effect that the life that we desire is far too small for us to live. What you can plan for yourself is much too small for you to live. There you go. Again, that sense that we take our lives very personally. <laughs> we think our lives are about what happens to us, <laughs> each as an individual, you know. And actually we're located in this life that is so much larger than that. And we um, we wound ourselves when we keep retreating into that personal life, you know. We think it's safer or easier or something. I don't know all the things we think it is. Um, and maybe it is sometimes, you know, but it comes at such an enormous cost. You, like you said, what you, what you told us today was a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the nice things, right, is that we can, since selves are always trying to make meaning and concoct stories that will, you know, account for a lot of the data... Um, that if you put yourself in the way of certain experiences, you begin to acquire some stories that the self tells itself that occasionally remind it that it's not the whole game in town <laughs> and to get out of the way a little bit. So there's that odd thing where, and, and retreats feel a lot like that, you know, that you're trying to tell yourself a story that will let you get out of the way of, mm-hmm. of what's going on. And I think the other side of that is that the self is so canny that, it's going to find a way to tell a story which is about the non-centrality of the self and somehow <laughs> sneakily make the self central anyway to that. And the cup-ending fire cone is one of those for, for me. You know, does, so does, does it go along with it when everything ends or not? And there's this incredible desire to sort of extract something eternal that you can kind of keep in your pocket that won't, won't disappear. And it seems to me one of the things about the Cohen tradition is it's constantly telling stories that are at least momentarily difficult for the self to sort of subvert and turn into stories that place the self at the center again. Mm-hmm. Something like that. 
Yeah, I, I think it's it's the problem with harsh austerities. You know, the problem with like manipulating the self or fixing the self or destroying the self. Or you know, it's like what are you obsessed with, <laughs> right? And, and it's just a negative, you know, emphasis on the self as opposed to any other kind. And, and you can't use the self to destroy a self in the in the language of the tradition, right? So it has to be something else. And I think that when you were talking in the beginning. Um, the kinds of stories we tell ourselves, like in retreat, to get yeah. out of that yeah. um, supremacy of the self. For a while, the, don't you feel like those stories are located in something larger than yes. ourselves? Yeah. And that's what's yeah. compelling, and oh, that's yeah. how they work, you yeah. know? And then the self tries to sort of reel it back in yeah. and make it small and limited again. But if we can keep saying, no, I don't think so, you know? <laughs> um, that's, I think those stories can keep working on us, and that's that's letting in the sky, you know, placing that, placing the smallness of the story that the self is trying to reduce it to against that, you know. And, and so the self stories become a little less compelling, or exactly it has a little bit of humor about the story it's telling itself. Without, we don't have to do the whole self-absorbed, self-obsessed thing about it. We just see it in its perspective. It's like it's like a, a bird that flew across the sky. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and it's gone. So in a way, we... I'm trying to find a trick here. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, in a way, we keep... If we keep ourselves open to not knowing... Then we have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so every time we have an insight, we can enjoy that, but then we drop it again. Yeah. Well, drop it or hold it lightly hold until it. the yeah. next insight comes along to demolish that. Yeah. You yeah. know? The, um, so, someone, someone was once asked a contemporary Japanese Roshi what he said. I, I just don't get what the ideas in Zen are. You know, I can't find the ideas. And and the Roshi responded, um, the only ideas in Zen are the ones that blow themselves up. <laughs> and and but this, the, you know, the the less dramatic version of that is, okay, you have an insight. That's beautiful. Live with that. Hold it lightly. Look for conflicting data. Look for you know something that that might contradict that or change it or deepen it or enhance it or enrich it. You know, that's the whole thing. And then at a certain point, you might find that it is time to put it down because it's not. Part of, it's not you're not harmonizing with the great sutra anymore. Mm-hmm. Somehow you're, you're you've gotten a little out of mm-hmm. um, harmony with that. So just keep because if if everything is changing, we're not going to be able to have insights and principles and stories that are unchanging mm-hmm. that we can hold on to. Mm-hmm. Right? I know. <laughs> But to, it's a little bit like living with a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> the self is a little bit like a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> or it, it keeps us on our heels. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And what you're describing is, means that you're still a little bit outside the experience. Mm-hmm. That if you were completely in harmony with it, 
you'd be you'd be swaying with it mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. and that would be what what is true yeah. so when you notice that when you notice that feeling of i'm being kept on my toe that's fine i mean there's nothing wrong with that yeah. but see if there's a way you can identify something that's keeping you from just swaying with what's mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. yeah um I don't know exactly the words, but I find so much warmth, sense of being very deeply moved and compassion in this. Like everything gets to be included, and especially, you know, there can be moments of practice about like the self struggling against being a self, which is kind of hilarious, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the moment that there is this like profound openness to even that experience, it's like tremendous compassion for the whole thing. Yeah. And and can you feel how that that's the bodhisattva vow? And when we refuse that compassion for ourselves, we are refusing our vow. Because we're refusing that exact channel you're talking about that opens out into the whole world. And then, of course, ironically or paradoxically, the self falls away. It's like totally small in context. Yeah. In the con- exactly right, exactly. So um, again, you know, like lift our gaze. <laughs> That's really—it's so important that we do that. We we're not locked in this struggle inside ourselves, but the struggle is seen in the in its true context. Yeah. Could I just quickly tell the little story of the pangolin cult, which is this? Um, this uh, Mary Douglas, an anthropologist. I'm going to get a lot of this wrong, but. Um, she's, she's got a book called uh, Purity and Danger where she wonders about what's taboo and in her notion what's taboo is the stuff that violates our categories because you know, it doesn't fit those cognitive structures that we build up. And for the, this one tribe in Africa, I don't remember where it is. You know, it's a long time since I've read this. But for that tribe, the most taboo animal is the pangolin because according to a lot of different categorizing Binaries, it violates all of them. Like it, it's neither this nor that nor that nor that nor that. So it's completely, you know, uncategorizable. And so the most esoteric cult is that you eat the meat of the pangolin. You know, it's a sort of deep experience. But so then Mary Douglas says, well, so so what do those people do the next day? You know, the next day they go back into the village, pick up all the taboos again, and obey them. And also, for me, that's like that's that feeling of the of the self. You know, that you you have an experience and then you come back, but you know, you've eaten the pangolin, and so you have a different relation, maybe, to you know your opinions and the structures you live inside, and and the stories that you're listening to that you're telling yourself. One of the ways we can think about karma that comes out of what you you were just saying, I think, is um, when we hit a place where there's a sort of karmic knot, you know, and it's difficult and we suffer and we can't figure out what to do about it. We can think of that as some cross we have to bear, you know, something that's personal to us um, that might seem tremendously unfair, you know, or however you want to categorize it. Or if we're thinking in terms of the great sutra, 
it's like a little tear in the paper that needs stitching up, you know. And when we do it, we do it for all of life. We take that knot of karma and we help to dissolve it so that all of life is a little bit less knotted. So I think you can hear in what I'm saying that the movement, wherever we look, in whatever direction we look, whatever problem we're, we're confronted with, whatever challenge we're taking on, the move is to get out of the constricted space that thinks that it's only about me. Open the gates and see that me is gigantic. Me contains so much, and that is the space in which I'm working. I'm working in that large space for the benefit of that large space. So one of the things that that means is that when we mess up, it's really not that big a deal taken in the context of the very large space. As long as our intention, you know, is to keep working on the knot or keep doing what we can do, you know, the universe is four billion years old. <laughs> is that how old it is? Thirteen. Thirteen. Sorry, thirteen billion years old. The Earth is the Earth is four billion years old. Yeah, the universe is thirteen billion years old. You know, relax. <laughs> you know, like like in this in this thing that we all care so much about in this thing that has tears, you know, just, right, just under the surface because it's so dear to us, because we feel so devoted to it, because when we meet like this in a place like this, we can taste it, you know, it's just so close, we can taste it, and we long for it so badly. In that very longing, in that very sense of, this is so important, this matters so much, you know. Take the time. Take the time, because you have the time. Lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. And that doesn't mean be lazy, because it's a lifetime of caring this much. It's lifetimes of caring this much. So it's not about becoming lazy, but it is about really caring. And when you find yourself in a blind alley, back yourself out and try something else. And don't worry about it. Something happened there that was important, even if you don't know what it is yet. Because we can't know what's happening underground. You know, we, we, we have this idea that we can just drag everything into consciousness and figure it out, you know. As we said in the Vernal Equinox Retreat, you know, 94-95% of the universe is dark and there's no way for us to see it or know it or experience it. Can you trust that? Can you trust what's happening underground? Can you trust what's happening in the dark? Can you trust that so much of our practice is about being willing to to walk through the dark, not turning on the light switches, but finding out what it's possible to know in the dark? Again, larger. Expanding the realm of our understanding out beyond what is conscious, out beyond even what we are mindful of, forgive me, into those huge spaces. 
that we can't know what is it like to be mindful of those spaces. If we can't know them, if we can't bring them into consciousness, if we can't grasp them, what does it mean to be mindful of them? Do we ignore them? Do we pretend they're not there? Do we tell ourselves a story that sort of you know, ties it all up? Or is part of being mindful not knowing at all? Being always aware of how much there is we don't know. We can't know. Right here, sitting in this room, this room is 95% stuff we can't know. What does it mean to be mindful of that? What does it mean to be mindful of the fact that we move in this great sutra through a great mystery? And there's no outside, there's no getting out of the mystery, there's no solving the mystery, there's no unlocking it. There is only coming to love it. Can you see that? Our choices are to be forever alienated from the world and our own lives or to figure out how to love it. It's pretty stark. And part of loving it is loving our little knobby, gnarly, elfin selves. (laughs) Because that's part of it too. No more, no less, you know. No more, no less. When you, even if you're, you know, you take a walk out and you're weeping, you know, you are that part of the mountain that's weeping. You are not as against the landscape. You are the part of the landscape weeping. That's all right. There's lots of parts of the landscape doing lots of different stuff, and in five minutes it will all be different. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings, And to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.